Hello, my name is David Schmitz. I'm a barrister and a member of Tenold Square. My topic today is when can the bastards grind you down? Times Travel UK Limited against Pakistan International Airlines Corporation decided by the Supreme Court earlier this year. And when will a threat to do something lawful amount to duress in contract law? The facts. The claimant, Times Travel, sold airline tickets as an agent for the defendant, Pakistan International Airlines, at a time when the defendant had a monopoly on flights to Pakistan. Disputes developed between the defendant and various of its agents, including the claimant, over unpaid commission payments. On the 14th September 2012, the defendant sent notice of termination to the claimant and to all its other UK agents, terminating their appointments as of the 31st of October. The notice offered reappointment, but only on terms that the claimant and the other agents each waived their respective claims for the monies they claimed to be owed. On the 17th of September 2012, the defendant tightened the screws by reducing the claimant's fortnightly allocation of tickets from 300 to 60. Had this continued, the claimant would have been forced out of business. On the 24th of September, therefore, the claimant agreed the new terms. On the 31st December 2014, the claimant brought proceedings for rescission of the agreement on the ground of duress and for payment of the monies owed. The trial judge found that in failing to make payment of two out of the three classes of payments which were claimed, the defendant had acted in breach of contract and therefore unlawfully. The reduction of the ticket allocation, the termination of the agency agreement and the insistence upon waiving the claims for payment, however, were lawful in that these did not amount either to a breach of contract or to a tort. Notwithstanding the lawfulness of the defendant's conduct, the trial judge found for the claimant on the issue of duress and set aside the agreement. The course which the appeals took was affected by a further finding by the trial judge, although ultimately it did not affect the result. That finding was that the defendant genuinely believed, albeit mistakenly, that it was not liable to pay the commission payments. In other words, the refusal to pay was not made in bad faith, even though the judge also held that in the case of one of the classes of payment, the claimant's case would have been strong enough for an award of summary judgment. In essence, therefore, this was a case where the defendant had used its monopoly power to force a much weaker party to give up claims, some of them very strong, which it had against the defendant for payment of trade debts owed to the claimant. The legal issue raised by the case was, therefore, when can a threat to carry out a lawful act nonetheless be regarded as illegitimate, thereby entitling the party who was threatened to set aside on the grounds of duress an agreement or a payment that has been procured by that threat? When, in other words, can conduct which is lawful nonetheless be stigmatized as illegitimate? The first question this gives rise to is whether duress can exist at all if the act which is threatened is in fact lawful. Duress in the form of a threat to do an unlawful act can result in a contract being set aside, not only where the threat is one of violence to the person or to property, but also where there is a threat to cause economic harm, the Universe Sentinel in 1983. Now, for actionable duress to occur, three elements are required. First, there must be a threat which is illegitimate. Note here that for the present I'm saying illegitimate, not unlawful. I'll deal with that distinction shortly. Two, the threat must have caused the claimant to enter into the transaction, and three, the claimant must have had no reasonable alternative but to enter into that transaction. 
Before turning to the distinction, I want to mention one further point in passing, which is that we are dealing here with a common law remedy rather than with an equitable remedy. It is therefore to be distinguished from the equitable treatment of undue influence or unconscionable bargains, where the court is concerned to protect a person who is personally vulnerable, for example, by reason of another person's ascendancy over him or her, or by reason of poverty or ignorance. With duress, a personal vulnerability need not be shown. On the other hand, the common law is less solicitous of the weaker party in ordinary commercial dealings than equity will be in the case where it is protecting a vulnerable person. To return to the question of whether duress can result from a threat to do something lawful, the question really amounts to this. When, if ever, will a threat to do something which is lawful nonetheless be illegitimate for the purpose of satisfying the first of the three requirements for duress? In time's travel, the Supreme Court reaffirmed that a threat to do a lawful act can give rise to unlawful duress. The obvious analogy is with blackmail. There is usually nothing unlawful per se in revealing a person's embarrassing secrets, but if someone makes a threat to do this unless his victim complies with a demand, the threat will often amount to a crime. That being so, it would be very odd if the civil law diverged from the criminal law in such a striking way. There have, in fact, been numerous civil cases where agreements were struck down on the ground of duress which involved the making of a threat to do a lawful act. If a person causes another to enter into a contract by promising not to prosecute a third party, the court will set the contract aside, not only because a contract to stifle the prosecution is void for illegality under English law, but because even where the governing law of the contract is a foreign law which does not hold such contracts to be illegal, the court will still act, Kaufman and Gerson in 1904. There have been other more recent examples having nothing to do with threatened prosecutions. Here, the common feature has been the maneuvering of the claimant into a position of vulnerability by illegitimate means so as to leave the claimant with no choice but to agree to abandon its claims against the defendant. In Borelli against Ting in 2010, a former chairman and CEO of a company in liquidation refused to cooperate with the liquidator, as was his duty, and used his voting power to block a scheme of arrangement which the liquidator wished to put through, but which required shareholder approval. He also forged documents and procured false evidence in opposing the scheme. When time was running out for approval of the scheme, he pressured the liquidators to make an agreement under which they promised to cease investigations and drop their claims against him in consideration of his accepting the scheme. The agreement was set aside even though there had been nothing unlawful in the defendant withholding his approval as a shareholder. The decision did not turn particularly on the fact that he used his position as a shareholder to his advantage. A shareholder is entitled to drive a hard bargain, doled against Murphy, a New Zealand Court of Appeal case from 2010. Far more important was his failure to cooperate with the liquidator and his misleading conduct in opposing the scheme in the first place. Another case is The Chenk, decided in 2012. Ship owners there repudiated a charter agreement and assured the claimant that they would provide a substitute vessel and compensate them for damages for the breach. The charterers relied on this assurance and did not seek a substitute. The owners then offered a substitute, but with a discount that did not match the losses suffered. 
They then made a take-it-or-leave-it offer, requiring the charters to waive its claim. The charterers accepted the offer, but the court set the agreement aside, thus enabling the charterers to claim damages. Again, there was nothing unlawful in the owners refusing to charter a ship, save on the terms that they demanded, but the court acted anyway. The second question, though, is what is required to make illegitimate a threat to do something which is lawful, and thereby to enable a claim in duress to succeed? What distinguishes duress from mere hard-nosed bargaining? Here it is important to note three things. Firstly, in any case where duress is claimed, the court will examine the context, much as a court of equity will do where it is claimed that one party has behaved unconscionably. Otherwise, there is a risk that judges will become moral arbiters at the expense of legal certainty. Secondly, the court will not intervene simply because of an inequality of bargaining power, even where a weak party is pitted against the holder of a monopoly. The courts regard the regulation of monopolies as a matter for legislation and for Parliament. 3. There is no overarching duty of good faith in English contract law. In both the Chenk and Borelli, the defendant, having exposed itself to a civil claim by the claimant, then manoeuvred the claimant into a position of vulnerability by illegitimate means, so as to force the claimant to waive its claim. In the Chenk, the defendant gave reassurances after the repudiation on which the claimant relied to the point that it had no choice but to accept the take-it-or-leave-it offer which came later, while in Borelli the defendant used false evidence and forged documents to delay the acceptance of the scheme until the time was almost up for adopting it, and he opposed the scheme when the scheme was in the interest of the company to which the defendant owed a duty of loyalty and which he had damaged while he was a fiduciary. In time's travel, by way of contrast, the means which the defendant used to manoeuvre the claimant, though certainly harsh, were not illegitimate. In ordinary commercial dealings, the court recognises that a party in a strong bargaining position may be hard-nosed in using it to his advantage, and the court will generally refrain from moral judgments with regard to that use. The claimant and the defendant were commercial entities at arm's length, and each was free to deal with the other in whatever way it found to be to its advantage. Would it have mattered if the defendant had known that it had no defence to the claimant's claim? The answer is no. The Supreme Court paid close attention to the Court of Appeals judgment in CTN Cash and Carry against Gallagher's in 1994. In that case, Gallagher delivered a consignment of cigarettes to the wrong CTN warehouse, from which they were stolen before they could be collected and delivered to the correct warehouse. Gallagher insisted that the cigarettes be paid for and threatened CTN with a withdrawal of credit if they were not. CTN claimed repayment of the bunnies on the basis of duress, but failed because Gallagher's assertion of its commercial self-interest was unexceptionable. In Gallagher, however, the Court of Appeal noted that Gallagher believed in good faith at the time of the demand that the monies were genuinely owing to it, and it was this mention of good faith in the CTN case to which the judges in Time's Travel paid particular attention. In his minority opinion in Time's Travel, Lord Burroughs opined that if Gallagher had not believed in good faith that the monies were owing to it, the case could have gone in favour of CTN, Bad faith, in his view, could have made it illegitimate for Gallagher to threaten to withdraw credit unless the monies were paid. In the view of the majority in Time's Travel, however, that view would 
quote, extend the doctrine of unlawful duress well beyond the position reached in previous cases, close quote. It would therefore lead to uncertainty. The lack of good faith was not a reliable guide as to when the court ought to intervene. This because there was often little to distinguish a demand for the waiver of a claim, even one known to be legitimate, from a demand for any other concession which a party might wish to exact. Context, though, is important. An absence of good faith may be relevant in deciding whether it acts attacked for other reasons were legitimate or not, but in the absence of other reasons it will not transform what is otherwise just a hard-nosed negotiation tactic into duress. The conclusion to be drawn, therefore, is that the use of a position of strength by one party, the defendant, to rid itself of a troublesome claim by another party, the claimant, can be attacked in some circumstances, but only if the defendant has manoeuvred the claimant into a position of vulnerability by illegitimate means. The superior bargaining power of the defendant will not justify the court's interference, nor will the nature of the wrong which has given rise to the claim be relevant, save in exceptional circumstances such as were present in Borelli. If the threat to do a thing which the defendant is lawfully entitled to do, the claimant will not have a remedy in duress even if the defendant knows of the justice of the claimant's claim. An absence of good faith, while possibly a relevant factor in some circumstances, will not suffice on its own. Other possible courses of action. It should be remembered that the classes of duress are not closed and the law will develop incrementally, as it always does. This is a new area of law which is developing. A claimant should also consider whether the pressure is truly legitimate. To take one example, a threat by a customer or supplier on whom a trader is dependent to discontinue commercial relations is usually lawful, bare textile holdings against Marks and Spencers in 2002. But in some circumstances there can be an implied obligation to continue relations for a time. As always, this will depend on whether a party's conduct is unconscionable, and as always, this will depend upon the facts. Thank you very much for listening. I hope this has been of interest.